Uh, we're up to chapter 4, and Carlton had planned to use the same passage this week to uh, kind of solidify some, some uh, final thoughts on chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and uh, throughout the week we had been discussing the passage, and so when he got the call to go home and preach his grandmother's funeral, we simply decided that I would pick up the passage and move on, and he'll just pick up from there next week, and, and we'll just keep moving in Ephesians. We're in verses uh, 1 through 3 of chapter 4, looking at what it means to uh, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. This phrase is found in verse 1 and seems to be a theme or a title for the following section. In other words, the broad scope of the passage uh, is that we would walk in a manner worthy of your calling, and later we have the specifics of how that is applied. I love the John 17 passage that Bruce just read for us because if you're looking for a great illustration, that is just the best illustration uh, to perfectly highlight what Paul is saying in this passage. And isn't it interesting that this topic of Christian unity was so important to Christ? You're dealing with a high priestly prayer, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus Christ recorded in Scripture and much of that is devoted to Christian unity. It's evidently a serious matter. So we're going to dive into our passage and ask a few questions regarding what it means to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And the first question that we will ask and hopefully answer is, what is this calling? Paul's call is for oneness or unity in the body of Christ. Paul says in our passage, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And as we read earlier, Jesus prayed for oneness in His church. He said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 11, praying to the Father, keep them in your name, those which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So according to Jesus, he intends for us to be in unity. First of all, a couple of guiding principles here regarding our unity we see that our unity exists only through Jesus Christ. Christian unity does not occur in any other context other than Jesus Christ. If it's outside of that realm, you really can't call it unity. A lot of people try to do that, but it's not possible. We are united in Him and Him alone. As believers, we do not check our doctrine and practice at the door for unity, for so-called unity. In fact, Scripture says exactly the opposite. Let's look at what Paul says in Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles, listen here, contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So Christ is the basis for our unity. 
You may have friends that are not believers in Christ, but real friendships have gospel purposes. The Bible says that you cannot truly have unity with a lost person. Light and darkness don't go together. It's impossible. This is revealed in what Jesus said when His mother and brothers wanted to speak with Him. We read about that in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, where Matthew writes, While He was still speaking to the people, behold, His mother and His brothers stood outside asking to speak to Him. But He replied to the man who told Him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. So we are united in Jesus Christ. Christian unity is based on the church's core beliefs that all believers share. These are the things that unite us. And I'm not going to give the exhaustive list of those core beliefs, but you know them. That our God is one God in three persons. That Jesus was fully God and fully man. That the, that the Bible is without error. Completely infallible. God's Word to us. And the list goes on. So we are united around a core set of beliefs. But we're not only united around a core set of beliefs, but also those things work themselves out in godly practice. True Christian witness bears fruit. The Bible says that even the demons believe logically and tremble. True Christian witness bears fruit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11-13, through 13, Paul says not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Purge the evil person from among you. So we are not only united around a core set of beliefs, but also the godly practices that proceed from them. Our second principle, our unity is an already but not yet matter. Notice how Paul puts this in verse 3. He says, eager to what? To maintain the unity of the Spirit. Maintain that. So this is not something that we're trying to drum up. It's not something that we're having, having to force apart from God. Just as He has seated us in the heavenly places. Just as we are saved and we are being saved. Just as we are definitively sanctified. Positionally sanctified and yet we are progressively sanctified. We are working that out. So we are working out our unity in Jesus Christ. It is already and not yet. Christ has accomplished this for us. It is a heavenly reality. 
We just have to live in it. And Paul says in chapter 2, I believe it's verse 10, that God created us in Christ Jesus for good works. There's cause and effect here. We are loved by Christ, therefore we are, we are loved. We are united with Christ, therefore we unite with each other. And yet God has given us a measuring stick in which to gauge our profession. He says it through John, right? He says that if we love God, then we will do what? If we love God, then we will love each other. It's a measuring stick in which to gauge our profession. Our love for each other helps us to see if our profession is true. And if it's not, we should plead with God in this matter. So we are daily working out our salvation according to Philippians 2. We are daily working out our unity, and yet it is a heavenly reality. It is already, but not yet. And our third principle, our unity is displayed through diversity in the body. And Paul will go into this more as the letter proceeds. But I did arrive at this conclusion due to something Paul says in verse 3. Seems to make reference to the Trinity there. As the different aspects of the Trinity converge into one beautiful Godhead, we get a glimpse into the beauty of Christian community. We're different, and yet God is pleased to bring out unity through our diversity. And this is really the amazing thing about the body of Christ. We downgrade the local church with all of its problems, but when you think about it, it's really amazing to the degree that the church is able to not only continue, but able to thrive. And still continues to impact the world. How else could any institution thrive for so long, a place where utterly sinful men and women are involved, except for God calls it to happen? How is that possible? The church has thrived for generations and will continue. The church is God's plan. There is no plan B. The church is His plan for moving the gospel forward. With all of its problems, it's amazing that the church continues to do this. Gaining ground, growing. So let's not downgrade the church. Christ will sustain His people. He will unify His church. He will build His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In our talk about unity and diversity, we can look at the Trinity. The unity of the Trinity with all of its diversity is the final picture of what community is all about here on earth. It is the ultimate. The members of God's church are diverse in function, gifts, roles, temperament, and talents. And yet God uses all of that for His glory. And if I could challenge you all with one thing in regards to this principle here, it would be this. 
be yourself. I mean, if we can't be ourselves in the local church context, where can we? Don't try to be the person next to you. I'll give you one example. Here at Grace Fellowship, we have a lot of prophets and teachers, right? Teaching is a very important aspect of Grace Fellowship. But you know what? Uh, there are some evangelists here. And I just think it's a shame for you not to be yourself and to uh, live out your gifting in God's church and challenge, challenge us in that way. We need you to simply be yourself and challenge us with what you bring to the table. So the first question was, what is our calling? The second question we have to answer is why do we have this calling? Paul issues this call so that we can display the unity of the Godhead through relationships in his local church. We made mention of this a second ago, but we need to take this thought further. Our first principle is this. Our unity is achieved by functioning in our God-given giftings and roles. Paul says in verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Now, I believe this unity of the Spirit is the unity of the Godhead. We are unified because God is unified. Like the Trinity, we function according to our gifting and our roles, and this is what we see in the Trinity. And this is what we've been learning over the past few weeks in our corporate confessions and carried further today in our corporate affirmation. And we can understand this from the Trinity. The roles and functions are like that of the Trinity. Look at it. The Spirit isn't trying to be the Son. The Son isn't trying to be the Father. There's equality in the Trinity and yet diversity. They have their roles and functions and thus unity exists. You know, when we don't understand this, when we don't understand God, we can really false, fall into false teaching. And this really highlights, this issue here really highlights some of the bad doctrine that we receive through some bad systems of theology. Because if we understand the Trinity, we understand that the Spirit's role is not to bring attention to Himself. The Spirit's role is to point to Christ. And these roles are lasting. They are everlasting. They are not temporal, but eternal. And the second principle is this. I love this. This fires me up. Our unity evangelizes the world. I think it's implied in the text. When the world sees a church that's unified in belief, both in their creed and in their practice, in their purpose, in their love for each other, it promotes the gospel. It helps them to see what God is like. It helps them to see that God is three in one. It helps them to see the self-giving love of the Trinity. It helps them to see that God loves Himself passionately and calls us into that relationship. It helps them to see His persevering love, an all-consuming passion for His own glory. Our unity lifts Him high. And all of this is modeled in the church. When they see that, 
they see God. And if we thought about this seriously, it would radically change everything in the church. If we really thought about the fact that, hey, the way I, re I interact with you guys and the way that I respond to you guys, if I really thought about the fact that that affects how people see God, things would be totally different. If we thought about it that way, it would change everything. Our third principle is this. That our unity is achieved through the cross or because of God's covenant love. The word bond here in verse 3, bond of peace, refers to the knitting of two things together or a welding together. In this relationship of ours, we are, we are welded together by God's definitive, His active, His tangible love. Unity is not entirely an emotional concept. For Christ, love was a concrete act. He substituted Himself on the cross. That was His love. That was His love displayed. He loved His bride in that way before we ever thought about loving Him back. So it wasn't feeling its purpose. Or I should say that it's not only feeling. It's primarily purpose. He purposed to love us in that way. And so our peace with each other, our peace with God and our peace with each other is based on that. It's based on the cross. That's what it all revolves around. It's based on His covenant love. This is the bond of peace to which Paul refers. Unity will sometimes occur without strong emotion. A good example of this is the marriage relationship, right? We know that in marriage, lustful passions tend to fade, right? However, what tends to replace those passions is the real substance. That's what true biblical love is. Love is displayed in serving. Love is displayed in keeping covenant. This is what Christ did. People evidently misunderstand this because of the things they say. Like when they say they don't love their spouse anymore. The truth is, a person who says that they fell out of love never understood what love is to begin with. Biblical love is covenantal love. It isn't defined in purely emotional terms. Lisa and I have spent the last two years learning what that covenant love means. Learning what our vows really mean when we say, in sickness and in health. If we had the same view that the world does, Lisa should have left me a long time ago. However, biblical love is not this way. It is purposeful and unity is the same way. Our third and final question is this. How do we live out this calling? Paul says that it is by bearing with one another. He says in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. 
As we've already said, unity is based on intention. You're not going to feel like being unified with each other all the time, but it's what you should do. Sometimes feelings follow that. Feelings follow obedience. Paul gives several examples in verse 2. He says to serve each other in humility, gentleness, and patience. In regards to humility, don't be arrogant. All too often, it's like we try to show off our spirituality. We want to show off our marriages, or we want to show off this or that. Don't try to show off your spirituality. Serve each other. And don't confuse humility with being shy. Humility and shyness is not the same thing. In fact, refusing to push against your shyness could be a pride issue. Because it says, I'm not willing to be transparent. I'm not willing to open up to let people see who I really am. I'm going to hide that off. I'm going to compartmentalize that. Humility means going out on a limb. It means serving. Carlton said that last week. It means serving. No matter how ridiculous you look. Push against that today when you leave. And you're afraid to talk to someone you haven't met. Do it anyway. Even if you feel ridiculous. Get into each other's lives. Be humble. We need to follow Christ's example of humility. In that He gave up His exalted position in heaven to come to earth. And don't be mistaken, that's the only way that He emptied Himself. He didn't empty Himself of any attributes. He emptied Himself of His exalted position in heaven. It was His. He deserved that position. It was His right as God the Son, and yet He emptied Himself of that. In regards to gentleness, don't be harsh with one another. Be gentle. Even when you rebuke, you can and should be gentle. What does Paul say in Galatians 6? He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Some of you tend to be so mad by the time you approach an issue that there's absolutely no gentleness when you get there. Gentleness does not negate power, but it is possible to be gentle and yet bold. In regards to patience, Expect growth and change to happen slowly. Expect that. Sometimes we expect too much too quickly with each other. In your marriages, in your relationships, in your family, in your relationships, in your church, with your friends, you expect change too quick. Be patient. Be willing to wait and for God to move in someone's life. Change will happen over time. Don't write each other off. Change will either happen with you, the other person, or both of you. Take your time and allow God to change attitudes and habits. And in closing, I want to look at a few hindrances that came to my mind pretty quickly in regard to attaining Christian unity. And this is in no way meant to be exhaustive, but I have a few things here. Hindrances to unity. Number one, Christian unity is hindered when one person or both, does not have the Spirit. 
Uh, this seems so obvious. But it cannot be overlooked that the Scripture warns us to avoid those who continually cause division, who habitually do that. We read a passage a while ago in Romans that stated this at the beginning of the message. Number two, Christian unity is hindered when we are trying to live according to someone else's roles or gift. gifts. Paul addresses this several places, but one passage is Romans 12, verses 3 through 5, where he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned him. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And so this is not to say that we shouldn't seek to grow in giftedness, but that we're not to be consumed with being someone else and forsaking how God has primarily gifted us. Aaron made mention to that earlier in the roles between men and women. Hindrance number three, Christian unity is hindered when we replace union for unity. We sometimes think that because we're in the same church, we're automatically unified. And that's just not the case. Don't forget, the United States had union with communist Russia against Hitler's Germany. And even though we were in union, we were certainly not unified. The author of Hebrews helps us here. In Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, sometimes a very misunderstood passage, misapplied. The author of Hebrews says, And let us consider how to stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So you see by the passage, this transcends just meeting together. This actually involves being in each other's lives. We are to be united, unified. We are to stir one another up to love and good works. Number four, Christian unity is hindered when we esteem men over God. This was the issue in the Corinthian church where they were choosing men that they would follow instead of the Lord. And we're not much different today, especially in Reformed circles, because a lot of times pastors in the Reformed circle are treated like rock stars. I love the resources that we have available to us today. I love the Gospel Coalition. I love... Uh, together for the gospel. I love uh, Desiring God, John Piper's ministry. I love Grace to You, John MacArthur's ministry. But we are sinning when we put these men on a pedestal. They are just men. And in response to this, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4 through 7, when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither 
He who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. Number five, Christian unity is hindered when we esteem ourselves over others. And that's probably the most convicting, isn't it? How many churches have split over this issue? How many worship wars have been fought over our own preferences? And I could preach about my hatred for contemporary and traditional services where you totally break apart your church based on preference. Oh my goodness. God heal us. Yet Paul addresses this in Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4, when he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. So these are some of the most obvious hindrances to unity. And may God purge these things from our midst. May they not be known among us at Grace Fellowship. May we submit to Christ and serve one another. And may the world have an act, may they have an accurate picture of who God is through our unity. Let's pray.